0: Section 6 of Selected Uncle Abner Mysteries by Melview Davison Post. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Twilight Adventure It was a strange scene that we approached. Before a crossroad leading into a grove of beech trees, a man sat on his horse with a rifle across his saddle. He did not speak until we were before him in the road, and then his words were sinister. "'Ride on,' he said. "'But my Uncle Abner did not ride on. "'He pulled up his big chestnut and looked calmly at the man. "'You speak like one having authority,' he said. "'The man answered with an oath. "'Ride on, or you'll get into trouble.' "'I am accustomed to trouble,' replied my uncle with great composure. "'You must give me a better reason.' "'I'll give you hell,' growled the man. "'Ride on.' "'Abner's eyes traveled over the speaker with a deliberate scrutiny. "'It is not yours to give,' he said. "Although possibly to receive. Are the roads of Virginia held by arms?' "'This one is,' replied the man. "'I think not,' replied my Uncle Abner, and touching his horse with his heel, he turned into the crossroad. The man seized his weapon, and I heard the hammer click under his thumb." "'Abner must have heard it, too, but he did not turn his broad back. "'He only called to me in his usual matter-of-fact voice. "'Go on, Martin. I will overtake you.' "'The man brought his gun up to his middle, but he did not shoot. "'He was like all those who undertake to command obedience "'without first having determined precisely what they will do "'if their orders are disregarded. "'He was prepared to threaten with desperate words, "'but not to support that threat with a desperate act, "'and he hung there uncertain.' "'cursing under his breath. "'I would have gone on as my uncle had told me to do, "'but now the man came to a decision. "'No, by God,' he said, "'if he goes in, you go in too.' "'And he seized my bridle "'and turned my horse into the crossroad. "'Then he followed. "'There is a long twilight in these hills. "'The sun departs, but the day remains. "'A sort of weird, dim, elfin day "'that dawns at sunset "'and envelops and possesses the world.' The land is full of light, but it is the light of no heavenly sun. It is a light equal everywhere, as though the earth strove to illumine itself and succeeded with that labor. The stars are not yet out. Now and then a pale moon rides in the sky, but it has no power, and the light is not from it. The wind is usually gone. The air is soft, and the fragrance of the fields fills it like a perfume. The noises of the day and of the creatures that go about by day cease, and the noises of the night and of the creatures that haunt the night begin. The bat swoops and circles in the maddest action, but without a sound. The eye sees him, but the ear hears nothing. The whippoorwill begins his plaintive cry, and one hears but does not see. It is a world that we do not understand, for we are creatures of the sun— and we are fearful lest we come upon things at work here of which we have no experience, and that may be able to justify themselves against our reason. And so a man falls into silence when he travels in this twilight, and he looks and listens with his senses out on guard. It was an old wagon road that we entered, with the grass growing between the ruts. The horses traveled without a sound until we began to enter a grove of ancient beech trees Then the dead leaves crackled and rustled. Abner did not look behind him, and so he did not know that I came. He knew that someone followed, but doubtless took it for the sentinel in the road, and I did not speak. The man with a cocked gun rode grimly behind me. I did not know whither we went or to what end. We might be shot down from behind a tree or murdered in our saddles. It was not a land where men took desperate measures upon a triviality and I knew that Abner rode into something that little men, lacking courage, would gladly have stayed out of. Presently my ear caught a sound, or rather a confused mingling of sounds, as of men digging in the earth. It was faint and some distance beyond us in the heart of the beech woods. but as we traveled the sound increased, and I could distinguish the strokes of the mattock, and the thrust of the shovel, and the clatter of earth on the dry leaves. These sounds seemed at first to be before us, and then a little later off to our right hand, and finally, through the gray boles of the beech trees in the lowland, I saw two men at work digging a pit. They had just begun their work, for there was little earth thrown out, but there was a great heap of leaves that they had cleared away, and heavy cakes of the baked crust that the mattocks had pried up. The length of the pit lay at right angles to the road, and the men were working with their backs toward us. They were in their shirts and trousers, and the heavy mottled shadows thrown by the beech limbs hovered on their backs and shoulders like a flock of nightbirds. The earth was baked and hard, the mattock rang on it, and among the noises of their work they did not hear us. I saw Ebner look off at this strange labor, his head half turned, but he did not stop, and we went on. The old wagon road made a turn into the low ground. I heard the sound of horses, and a moment later we came upon a dozen men. I shall not easily forget that scene. The beech trees had been deadened by some settler who had chopped a ring around them, and they stood gaunt with a few tattered leaves, letting the weird twilight in. Some of the men stood about, others sat on the fallen trees, and others in their saddles, but upon every man of that grim company there was the air and aspect of one who waits for something to be finished. An old man with a heavy iron-gray beard smoked a pipe puffing out great mouthfuls of smoke with a sort of deliberate energy, another whittled a stick, cutting a bull with horns and shaping his work with the nicest care, and still another traced letters on the pommel of his saddle with his thumbnail. A little to one side a great pronged beech thrust out a gray arm, and under it two men sat on their horses, their elbows strapped to their bodies, and their mouths gagged with a saddle-cloth and behind them a man in his saddle was working with a colt halter, unravelling the twine that bound the headpiece and seeking thereby to get a greater length of rope. This was the scene when I caught it first. But a moment later, when my uncle rode into it, the thing burst into furious life. Men sprang up, caught his horse by the bit, and covered him with weapons. Someone called for the sentinel who rode behind me, and he galloped up. For a moment there was confusion— Then the big man who had smoked with such deliberation called out my uncle's name. Others repeated it, and the panic was gone. But a ring of stern, determined faces were around him and before his horse, and with the passing of the flash of action there passed no whit of the grim purpose upon which these men were set. My uncle looked about him. Lemuel Arnold, he said. Nicholas Vance. Hiram Ward. You here? As my uncle named these men, I knew them. They were cattle grazers. Ward was the big man with a pipe. The men with them were their renters and drovers. Their lands lay nearest to the mountains. The geographical position made for feudal customs and a certain independence of action. They were on the border, they were accustomed to say, and had to take care of themselves. And it ought to be written that they did take care of themselves with courage and decision, and on occasion they also took care of Virginia." Their fathers had pushed the frontier of the Dominion northward and westward and had held the land. They had fought the savage single-handed and desperately by his own methods and with his own weapons. Ruthless and merciless, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, they returned what they were given. They did not send to Virginia for militia. When the savage came, they fought him at their doors and followed him through the forest and took their toll of death. They were hardier than he was, and their hands were heavier and bloodier until the old men in the tribes of the Ohio Valley forbade those raids because they cost too much and turned the war parties south into Kentucky. Certain historians have written severely of these men and their ruthless methods and prattled of humane warfare. But they wrote, nursing their soft spines in the security of a civilization which these men's hands had builded, and their words are hollow. Abner, said Ward. Let me speak plainly. We have got an account to settle with a couple of cattle thieves, and we are not going to be interfered with. Cattle-stealing and murder have got to stop in these hills. We've had enough of it. Well, replied my uncle, I am the last man in Virginia to interfere with that. We have all had enough of it, and we are all determined that it must cease. But how do you propose to end it? With a rope, said Ward. It is a good way. "'replied Abner. "'When it is done the right way.' "'What do you mean by the right way?' said Ward. "'I mean,' answered my uncle, "'that we have all agreed to a way, "'and we have to stick to our agreement. "'Now I want to help you put down cattle-stealing and murder, "'but I also want to keep my word.' "'And how have you given your word?' "'In the same way that you have given yours,' said Abner. "'And as every man here has given his.' Our fathers found out that when they could not manage the assassin and the thief, when every man understood to act for himself, so they got together and agreed upon a certain way to do these things. Now we have endorsed what they agreed to, and promised to obey it, and I, for one, would like to keep my promise. The big man's face was puzzled. Now it cleared. "'Hell,' he said, "'you mean the law?' "'Call it what you like.' replied Abner. It is merely the agreement of everybody to do certain things in a certain way. The man made a decisive gesture with a jerk of his head. Well, he said, we're going to do this thing our own way. My uncle's face became thoughtful. Then, he said, you will injure some innocent people. You mean these two black legs? And Ward indicated the prisoners with a gesture of his thumb. My uncle lifted his face and looked at the two men some distance away beneath the great beach, as though he had but now observed them. "'I was not thinking of them,' he answered. "'I was thinking that if men like you and Lemuel Arnold and Nicholas Vance violate the law, lesser men will follow your example, and as you justify your act for security, they will justify theirs for revenge and plunder.' and so the law will go to pieces, and a lot of weak and innocent people who depend upon it for security will be left unprotected. These were words that I have remembered, because they put the danger of lynch law in a light I had not thought of. But I saw that they would not move these determined men. Their blood was up, and they received them coldly. "'Abner,' said Ward, "'we are not going to argue this thing with you.' There are times when men have to take the law into their own hands. We live here at the foot of the mountains. Our cattle are stolen and run across the border into Maryland. We are tired of it, and we intend to stop it. Our lives and our property are menaced by a set of reckless, desperate devils that we have determined to hunt down and hang to the first tree in sight. We did not send for you. You pushed your way in here. And now, if you are afraid of breaking the law, you can ride on because we are going to break it, if to hang a pair of murderous devils is to break it. I was astonished at my uncle's decision. "'Well,' he said, "'if the law must be broken, I will stay and help you break it.' "'Very well,' replied Ward. "'But don't get a wrong notion in your head, Abner. If you choose to stay, you put yourself on a footing with everybody else.' "'And that is precisely what I want to do,' replied Abner." "'But as matters stand now, every man here has an advantage over me.' "'What advantage, Abner?' said Ward. "'The advantage,' answered my uncle. "'That he has heard all the evidence against your prisoners, "'and is convinced that they are guilty.' "'If that is all the advantage, Abner,' replied Ward, "'you shall not be denied it. "'There has been so much cattle stealing here of late "'that our people living on the border "'finally got together and determined to stop "'every drove going up the mountain "'that wasn't accompanied by somebody "'that we knew was all right. "'This afternoon, one of my men reported "'a little bunch of about a hundred steers on the road, "'and I stopped it. "'These two men were driving the cattle. "'I inquired if the cattle belonged to them, "'and they replied that they were not the owners, "'but that they had been hired "'to take the drove over into Maryland.' I did not know the men, and as they met my inquiries with oaths and imprecations, I was suspicious of them. I demanded the name of the owner who had hired them to drive the cattle. They said it was none of my damned business, and went on. I raised the county. We overtook them, turned their cattle into a field, and brought them back until we could find out who the drove belonged to. On the road we met Bowers, he turned and indicated the man who was working with a rope halter. I knew the man. He was a cattle shipper, somewhat involved in debt, but who managed to buy and sell and somehow keep his head above water. He told us the truth. Yesterday evening he had gone over on the stone coal to look at Daniel Koopman's cattle. He had heard that some grazer from your county, Abner, was on his way to buy the cattle for stockers. He wanted to get in ahead of your man, so he left home that evening and got to Koopman's place about sundown. He took a short cut on foot over the hill, and when he came out, he saw a man on the opposite ridge where the road runs, ride away. The man seemed to have been sitting on his horse, looking down into the little valley where Koopman's house stands. Bowers went down to the house, but Koopman was not there. The door was open, and Bowers says the house looked as though Koopman had just gone out of it and might come back any moment. There was no one about, because Koopman's wife had gone on a visit to her daughter over the mountains and the old man was alone. Bowers thought Koopman was out, showing the cattle to the man whom he had just seen right off, so he went out to the pasture field to look for him. He could not find him, and he could not find the cattle. He came back to the house to wait until Koopman should come in. He sat down on the porch. As he sat there he noticed that the porch had been scrubbed and was still wet. He looked at it and saw that it had been scrubbed only at one place before the door. This seemed to him a little peculiar and he wondered why Koopman had scrubbed his porch only in one place. He got up, and as he went toward the door, he saw that the jam of the door was splintered at a point about halfway up. He examined the splintered place, and presently discovered that it was a bullet hole. This alarmed him, and he went out into the yard. There he saw a wagon track leading away from the house toward the road. In the weeds, he found Koopman's watch. He picked it up, and put it into his pocket. It was a big silver watch with Koopman's name on it, and attached to it was a buckskin string. He followed the track to the gate where it entered the road. He discovered, then, that the cattle had also passed through this gate. It was now night. Bowers went back, got Koopman's saddle-horse out of the stable, rode him home, and followed the track of the cattle this morning, but he saw no trace of the drove until we met him. "'What did Shifflet and Twiggs say to this story?' inquired Abner. "'They did not hear it,' answered Ward. "'Bowers did not talk before them. "'He rode aside with us when we met him.' "'Did Shifflet and Twiggs know Bowers?' said Abner. "'I don't know,' replied Ward. "'Their talk was so foul when we stopped the drove "'that we had to tie their mouths up.' "'Is that all?' said Abner. "'Ward swore a great oath.' "'No,' he said. "'Do you think we would hang men on that?' "'From what Bowers told us, we thought Shiflett and Twiggs had killed Daniel Koopman and driven off his cattle, but we wanted to be certain of it, so we set out to discover what they had done with Koopman's body after they had killed him and what they had done with the wagon. We followed the trail of the drove down to the valley river. No wagon had crossed.' "'but on the other side we found that a wagon and a drove of cattle "'had turned out of the road and gone along the basin of the river "'for about a mile through the woods. "'And there, in a bend of the river, we found where these devils had camped. "'There had been a great fire of logs very near to the river, "'but none of the ashes of the fire remained. "'From a circular space some twelve feet in diameter "'the ashes had all been shoveled off, "'the marks of the shovel being distinct. "'In the center of the place where this fire had burned "'the ground had been scraped clean.' but near the edges there were some traces of cinders, and the ground was blackened. In the river at this point, just opposite the remains of the fire, was a natural washout or hole. We made a raft of logs, cut a pole with a fork on the end, and dragged the river. We found most with a wagon iron, all showing the effect of fire. Then we fastened a tin bucket to a pole and fished the washout. We brought up cinders, buttons, buckles, and pieces of bone. Ward paused. That settled it, and we came back here to swing the devils up. My uncle had listened very carefully, and now he spoke. "'What did the man pay, Twiggs and Shifflet?' said my uncle. "'Did they tell you that when you stopped the drove?' "'Now that,' answered Ward, "'was another piece of damning evidence. When we searched the men, we found a pocketbook on Shifflet with a hundred and fifteen dollars and some odd cents.' "'It was Daniel Koopman's pocket-book, "'because there was an old tax receipt in it "'that had slipped down between the leather and the lining. "'We asked Shiflet where he got it, "'and he said that the fifteen dollars in the change was his own money, "'and that the hundred had been paid to him "'by the man who had hired them to drive the cattle. "'He explained his possession of the pocket-book "'by saying that this man had the money in it, "'and when he went to pay them, "'he said that they might just as well take it, too. "'Who was this man?' said Abner. They will not tell who he was. Why not? Now, Abner, cried Ward, why not indeed? Because there never was any such man. The story is a lie out of the whole cloth. These two devils are guilty as hell. The proof is all dead against them. Well, replied my uncle, what circumstantial evidence proves depends a good deal on how you get started. It is a somewhat dangerous road to the truth, "'because all the signboards have a curious trick "'of pointing in the direction that you are going. "'Now a man will never realize this "'unless he turns around and starts back. "'Then he will see to his amazement "'that the signboards have also turned. "'But as long as his face is set one certain way "'it is of no use to talk to him. "'He won't listen to you, "'and if he sees you going the other way "'he will call you a fool.' "'There is only one way in this case,' said Ward. There are always two ways, in every case, replied Abner, that the suspected person is either guilty or innocent. You have started upon the theory that Shiflet and Twiggs are guilty. Now suppose you had started the other way. What then? Well, said Ward, what then? This then, continued Abner, you stop Shiflet and Twiggs on the road with Daniel Koopman's cattle— and they tell you that a man has hired them to drive this drove into Maryland. You believe that and start out to find the man. You find Bowers. Bowers went deadly white. For God's sake, Abner, he said. But my uncle was merciless, and he drove in the conclusion. What then? There was no answer. But the faces of the men about my uncle turned toward the man whose trembling hands fingered the rope that he was preparing for another. "'But the things we found, Abner,' said Ward. "'What do they prove?' continued my uncle. "'Now that the signboards are turned. "'That somebody killed Daniel Koopman and drove off his cattle, "'and afterward destroyed the body and the wagon in which it was hauled away. "'But who did that? "'The men who were driving Daniel Koopman's cattle? "'Or the man who was riding Daniel Koopman's horse "'and carrying Daniel Koopman's watch in his pocket?' Ward's face was a study in expression. "'Ah!' cried Abner. "'Remember that the sign have turned about. "'And what do they point to if we read them on the way that we are going now? "'The man who killed Koopman was afraid to be found with the cattle, "'so he hired Twiggs and Shiflet to drive them into Maryland for him "'and follows on another road.' "'But his story, Abner,' said Ward. "'And what of it?' replied my uncle. He is taken, and he must explain how he comes by the horse that he rides, and the watch that he carries, and he must find the criminal. Well, he tells you a tale to fit the facts that you will find when you go back to look, and he gives you shiflet twigs to hang. I never saw a man in more mortal terror than Jacob Bowers. He sat in his saddle like a man bewildered. My God, he said, and again he repeated it, and again. And he had cause for that terror on him. My uncle was stern and ruthless. The pendulum had swung the other way, and the lawless monster that Bowers had allied was now turning on himself. He saw it, and his joints were unhinged with fear. A voice crashed out of the ring of desperate men, uttering the changed opinion. "'By God!' he cried. "'We've got the right man now!' And one man caught the rope out of Bowers' hand. But my uncle Abner rode in on them. "'Are you sure about that?' he said. "'Sure,' they echoed. "'You have shown it yourself, Abner." "'No,' replied my uncle. "'I have not shown it. I have shown merely whither circumstantial evidence leads us when we go hot foot after a theory. Bowers says there was a man on the hill above Daniel Koopman's house, and this man will know that he did not kill Daniel Koopman, and that his story is the truth.' They laughed in my uncle's face. Do you believe there was any such person? My uncle seemed to increase in stature, and his voice became big and dominant. I do, he said, because I am the man. They had got their lesson, and we rode out with Shifflett and twigs to a legal trial. End of A Twilight Adventure